Deploying software to a container presents a different security model than deploying an application to a virtual machine. There's a smaller attack surface per container than per VM, but the container is co-located on a node with other containers, so there is what's known as a breakout risk of somebody getting outside of the container that they're supposed to be allocated to and getting into another container on the node. Containers are meant to have a shorter lifetime than VMs, so there are potentially fewer consequences if a container needs to be destroyed and rebuilt due to a potential security vulnerability. There are many other trade-offs between the container model versus the VM model, but generally it looks like containers are better for their security properties. Maya Kaczorowski works on container security at Google. In a recent talk at KubeCon, Maya discussed runtime security of containers on Kubernetes. Maya joins the show to discuss container security and what it means to software developers and operators. Maya also gives guidelines for evaluating the security of your own cluster. We talked about the security benefits of a managed Kubernetes provider and also explored how some container security vendor software works. We touched on Istio and also at the end talked a little bit about Chromebooks, which have their own interesting security properties. I enjoyed having Maya on the show, and I hope you enjoy the episode as much as I did. Maya Kaczorowski is a security product manager at Google. Maya, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me. You work on container security for much of your job. If I'm an average developer, why do I need to care about container security? Well, if you're an average developer, you're actually probably not using containers yet. So maybe you don't need to care yet. But it is a trendy topic these days. You see more and more workloads moving to containers and more and more workloads worrying about container orchestration for systems like Kubernetes, for example. Um, if you are running something in a containerized environment, then you should care about the security of that. And so that's container security. In terms of, you know, should you care more than security of VMs or security of other infrastructure systems? Not necessarily. We're not necessarily seeing attacks yet that are targeting containers specifically, but it's just a good general best practice. Hmm. In comparison to virtual machines, what are the security advantages of containers? Sure. So a container is has a bit of a different, different construct than a VM. So a VM will have um, hardware with a host OS running on top of that, a hypervisor, which helps isolate individual VMs, and then the VMs running on top, each with their own binaries, libraries, application code, etc. A container, on the other hand, will have you know, hardware and then a host OS. The host OS will be much smaller. It's a minimal host OS is what we say. And you won't have a hypervisor. Then you'll have kind of a container runtime and, and shared binaries and libraries and then individual containers with application code running on top of that. The major differences from an architectural point of view are that containers have this minimal host OS rather than a kind of bloated host OS with all this, all this stuff in it, which is good because it has a smaller surface of attack than, than a VM would have in that host OS. The downside from a container point of view is that it doesn't have this hypervisor. And a hypervisor is something that we're very familiar with in VMs in terms of the isolation that they provide for workloads. So we don't have this, this similar construct, or we didn't until the last couple of months have this similar construct for containers in terms of isolation. The container has a small attack surface. What does that mean to have a small attack surface? 
It means that it has fewer components that are not needed. So an application that's very large will have a large attack surface. But what a container gives you versus, say, a VM is fewer kind of unnecessary components. So a VM might come with for example, your, your host image might have, you know, various language libraries and packages and things in that, that the actual end application that you're using doesn't need. But from an ease of management point of view, it's easier for you to just have the same VM image for all your VMs. With containers, you can have the same container image for the container host image for all your, all your containers, and then put a lot of that bloat into individual containers. So you don't have to, to have certain services have packages for other services if they don't need them. Like, why does that matter from a security point of view, other than obviously, you know, it helps your performance, is that say there's a vulnerability discovered in Java next week, right? Or discovered in a particular kernel, piece of the kernel, or discovered in a particular application, whatever. With VMs, you'd have to go through everything and see what's affected. With containers, it might actually only be some fraction of your of your infrastructure that's affected. And more importantly, you won't have things that that don't even use that component being affected by a security issue. The best practice around containers is to treat them as cattle, not pets. That's the metaphor we're all familiar with at this point. And the idea is that cattle would be more dispensable. How does the metaphor there, the idea that your your containers are going to be more dispensable than VMs, that there's it's okay if your container dies, how does that impact the security properties of containers in terms of how we actually use them? Yeah, so containers are meant to be exactly that, immutable, and therefore often come up and down, right? They're supposed to be kind of generic and then have this image that you have to redeploy every time you want to do something new, rather than you tweaking what's happening already in, in production. What that means is that your container has a shorter lifetime than a VM would have, which is a good thing from a security point of view, right? It's harder for somebody to gain a foothold into a system that's constantly changing and where they where that container constantly gets killed and restarted. The downside from a container security point of view is that if you do have a, an attack, the container might be gone by the time that you figured out that there was an attack and you might have you know, no way of doing forensics. So it's, it's great that your, your environment is constantly changing, but it doesn't necessarily let you introspect individual events happening in your environment. Right. And is there any risk there of auditability? Because if my containers are churning out more often, then somebody could potentially break into my container and then due to a routine event, and then you know they break into my container, they do something with it, and then the container goes away because of some churn in the infrastructure that is to be expected. That's totally fine. If that kind of thing happens, how will I ever be aware that somebody has intruded and has made their way into my container? Yeah, you might, you might not even know. I mean, the, the idea is that you definitely have, you should have logs for what's happening in infrastructure and be able to look at it that way. What you won't have is like, you know, deep forensic analysis. You won't be able to snapshot your container like you can a VM today to see what changed between this moment and that moment. We don't have that that the same level of forensics technology for containers yet. That being said, the scenario that you're talking about of somebody getting in and seeing that they're in a container and doing very specific behavior because they're in a container is extremely rare, right? People are attacking containers the same way that they're already attacking VMs. They're saying, hey, free compute resources, let me mine some cryptocurrency. It's not like, hey, I'm in a container, let me try to take this person's service down by crashing the container repeatedly. Let me try to flood the event pipeline by by making sure that I, you know, they can't detect what I'm actually going to do next because it's crashed. That's not what we're seeing yet. If I'm running my container on the same host as some other container that's totally unrelated to what I'm doing, how well is my container isolated from that other container? Yeah, that's the the hypervisor security question. So on a VM, your you know your VM is pretty well isolated from other VMs using 
hypervisor technology. On, from a container point of view, a container isn't really meant to contain. So you have containers running in, in the Kubernetes framework, you have containers running in pods, and pods running on nodes. And nodes have that hypervisor layer, layer isolation that, that we have. So two things that are running in the same node, so two containers in the same pod or two pods in the same node, don't have a strong security boundary between them, traditionally. So there's a couple of projects in the space right now that are trying to address that, that that problem. One is Kata Containers, which aims to run a very lightweight uh, VM per container so that you can you can have benefit from the hypervisor layer isolation, basically work only with containers. And the other project is Gvisor, which is uh, released from Google. It's something we've, been, we've developed internally and been using for years. And that's around um, providing sort of a a fake kernel in user space such that you can have two containers running on the same machine which don't have access to the to a shared kernel. We did a show a while ago about the fact that companies often have infrastructure sprawl. So they don't know what's running across their company. They just have so much infrastructure and it seems like with containers it becomes even cheaper to spin up infrastructure. In fact, you and I were were both at KubeCon and a lot of the thrust behind some of the enterprises that were walking around KubeCon talking to different vendors and deciding, you know, which vendor should I go with? Why should I go with a Kubernetes vendor? I think a lot of the thrust was the idea that if you install Kubernetes in your company, it becomes much easier to spin up infrastructure. So you can do testing, you can spin up staging environments. It's just there's just a lower barrier to doing that. But the consequence of that is that you just get more infrastructure, and it seems like you could get orphaned containers quite easily. Is that a problem, that increased infrastructure sprawl? I, I don't think so, at least not yet, or, or rather not that I'm seeing. So people are typically taking existing workloads and putting them into containers or building brand new things from containers from scratch, but we're not yet seeing containers aren't old enough to have legacy infrastructure yet. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like there aren't these containers that you built three years ago lying around that are still running. Is that something that we could definitely have to deal with in a couple of years? Maybe. The idea that I'm liking right now in security is something we're calling reverse uptime. It was championed by a Docker who's, you know, obviously knows something about containers. And the idea is that you shouldn't have any containers in your infrastructure running more than a certain amount of time. Um, they're not providing guidance on this, but you could imagine being able to say, hey, I want to only have containers that are less than a month old or less than a week old or less than a day old in my infrastructure. And I'm going to constantly kill the containers that are too old and, re- and rebuild and redeploy them. Now, the reality is I don't actually know of anybody doing this in practice, right? Google deploys so many containers. We don't you know, purposely kill the old ones like this, but we deploy so many containers that it sort of naturally has a turnover that's quite high. The other end is some companies will rebuild their containers every night. There was an example of that at KubeCon. I, I believe it was the Financial Times that was saying, redeploy every night, but we rebuild every night so that if you need to redeploy in the morning, you can. But nobody's doing that full flow yet of saying, here's what I've already deployed looking at my deployment history. You know, here's how old it is. Therefore, let me kill it or let me, you know, determine that it's part of this rogue too old infrastructure that I need to deal with, and then let me rebuild and redeploy. No, that trigger, that cycle doesn't exist yet as a construct that people are following. What do you think of that approach of that the Financial Times has there, where on a nightly basis, you just scrap everything and rebuild it? I think it's great. <laughs> I wish other people would think the same way. I mean, containers are meant to be immutable, and we're meant to be constantly redeploying them, and your infrastructure is meant to be constantly changing. I think a lot of a lot of users I'm seeing are saying, hey, I want to do the Kubernetes thing, but they're not grasping that concept. And so they're deploying the Kubernetes and deploying to, you know, version 1.8, and then they freak out when they have to to upgrade to version 1.9. That's not the point. The point is that you've, you've changed to an infrastructure that is constantly changing, where it's so much easier for you to patch, so much easier for you to upgrade. Right. 
so if I'm, let's say I'm a CIO at a company and I get to a situation where I have tons of containers across my company, is there a good way to be able to index and identify and introspect all of these different containers and perhaps, you know, maintain some security hygiene across this sprawling infrastructure? Yeah, we're looking at container security in kind of three three aspects from, from a Google point of view. The first one is what we'll call um, secure to develop, which is what you do in order to properly develop containers from your infrastructure, things like networking, identity, secret management, etc. There's a set of best practices to follow there. I know the Kubernetes community right now is is discussing how to make better secure defaults for the average user to be able to deploy something in Kubernetes that, that's pretty secure. So that's step one. Step one is use the things that are already there. Like don't don't make life harder for yourself than it needs to be. Step two is, is kind of the what we're calling secure to build and deploy or the software supply chain, which is, you know, how do you give your developers good images so that they can then build containers on top of those, have a hermetic environment to build them in, scan those things for vulnerabilities, ensure that they came out of your CI/CD pipeline before you deploy them and enforce other deploy time policies. I think there's a lot of emphasis being put right now in the industry on that. And that makes a lot of sense because it's a single choke point for what actually ends up in your infrastructure. So if if you're not looking at, you know, what some minimum requirements are right now for deploying things to your infrastructure, that might be like a really good first step. And that's also how you're going to get a deployment history of here's what was deployed into my infrastructure. The last area is what we're calling secure to run or kind of runtime security, which is I already have a container up and running in my infrastructure and I want to be able to detect an event that's bad that's happening, you know, monitor that container, move it to a different network if that's an option, kill it, restart it, whatever it happens to be. And then after the fact, do forensics. And that's kind of the third the third area. So to answer your earlier question, like if you're thinking about this, you know, how do I know what's happening in my infrastructure right now? Is there a good way to introspect? I would say not really. I think the best thing you can do today is start with some secure defaults and then monitor everything that you are deploying to see so that you ha- at least have an idea of what's what could be in your environment. You don't know that it's died or not or if it's still in your environment, but you know that at some point you've deployed that into your environment. Right. Now, you mentioned this case of cryptocurrency mining that can occur if, you know, if somebody accesses a, a container or any piece of infrastructure and they get privileges on it and they can install cryptocurrency mining software, they might do that. And in order to prevent that kind of thing from happening, or at least detect what kind of thing, when that kind of thing happens, you have to have some infrastructure in place to detect behavior that deviates from the norm. Now, in the cryptocurrency mining case, I can imagine pretty straightforward, you just like look at you know if one of your containers is taking up a inordinate amount of CPU probably something's going strangely but there are other cases where the detection of behavior that is deviating from the norm is, is perhaps more subtle like you have accessing private information for example how would you detect behavior that would deviate from the norm if somebody has intruded your infrastructure what's the strategy for being able to detect it on a regular basis so the, a lot of the runtime security solutions are looking at system calls. So they typically are deployed as either a kernel module or a privileged container that you have running on, on every node. And we'll look at the system calls that your containers are making to determine if they're doing something unusual. And a lot of these have both a set of rules that's detecting common attacks, plus uh, usually an ML model that would be trained on your specific infrastructure that says, hey, you know, we've never seen you make this access before, therefore maybe this access should be flagged. So that's definitely how you should be detecting things that are happening in your containers. However, what you're describing, a lot of the cryptocurrency type stuff that we're seeing is like way more boring, right? A lot of the conversations I have with customers are like, 
hey, I'm really afraid of a container escape. I'm really afraid of somebody getting into my containers and escaping and then, you know, doing something terrible in my infrastructure. Or even I'm worried about somebody getting into my container and and mining cryptocurrency. And the reality is, it's just that's not what we're seeing. People are not attacking specifically containers yet. They're seeing opportunities to use those resources. And so even things like the the Tesla hack, which is, I guess, semi-famous now in the in the container world, probably because it's one of the few public examples that we have of a hack involving Kubernetes, is that they had the UI dashboard running, the Kubernetes UI dashboard running expose that is without a password that included their, their AWS IAM credentials. And so an attacker found this exposed dashboard, found their credentials and started crypto mining. They weren't even mining the crypto in the same cluster. They just took the credentials from a thing and then started using them elsewhere. So it's not contained specific necessarily yet. It's the same things we see elsewhere, privilege escalation, credential theft, and I use a zero day vulnerability to then get something valuable, which in this case is typically like an IAM credential to then do cryptocurrency mining. Although yeah, I've seen you, you gave a presentation at KubeCon and you were talking about this in a little more detail. And what you got into was container monitoring and logging can potentially assist with this kind of situation. For sure. So what are some best practices around container monitoring? Um, so, so I'll just give this for this specific example, right? One thing that we could have let do, we could have looked for would be, you know, is the dashboard open? Is your Kubernetes UI dashboard open? And you know, when was it last accessed? What we expect to see in a lot of attacks is like, is somebody trying to get get a reverse shell, right? That's very clearly somebody doing a malicious action. They're not yet doing the cryptocurrency mining. They're doing something to try to get something valuable to then do something bad. In terms of monitoring, to sorry to answer your question, it's a combination of things. I think if we look at something like Kubernetes, people are monitoring, you know, application calls and application things using using things like Prometheus. Uh, we have some network monitoring that's that's being that's going to come from from tools like Istio. We have syscalls that are coming from some of these these open source or third party container runtime detection tools. We have audit logging built into Kubernetes as well that tells you, you know, who did an action on the master API and, and when did that happen and what action did they perform. Um, so there's there's a wide variety of logs that are coming out of this. I think what we don't necessarily have yet as an industry is a good way of saying, hey, this these three actions here bundled together is probably an attack on a container. Yeah, I think you said earlier, you know, you could tr- at least train a machine learning model and then be able to detect deviations Correct. from that model. But even that's not going to be perfect. And it, I mean, it's better than nothing. <laughs> Certainly better than nothing. Yeah. So what about that the monitoring and logging? I mean, these are things that you would want, obviously, in a, in a Kubernetes cluster. Are the practices around monitoring logging standardized enough and are customers deploying them on a reliable basis? I think if you're working with a hosted solution, so something like a, like a GKE, a Kubernetes engine from Google, a lot of that's deployed for you. So audit logging's there for you by default. Prometheus is there for you by default. Obviously, we're working on making Istio available for you there. If you're doing it on your own, I think it's well understood what you need to do, but it's maybe not necessarily easy for you to do yet. So there's still there's still a lot of work that we're asking an average developer to take on. We're talking about monitoring, but that's true in security too, right? We, we give you a laundry list as a community right now that says, oh, you want to be secure in Kubernetes? Sure, here, here are 15 things you have to go do. And people are starting to realize that that's not going to work, that it's not going to work for the average user and it's not going to work for enterprises and are starting to, to change that and fix that. Mm. So we've done several shows on Istio. This is the service mesh tool. What role does a service mesh play in security policy? 
Yeah, a service mesh can see the network traffic between various services that you have and can therefore both help you monitor the network traffic as well as enforce arbitrary policies that you might have. So you might be able you might want to be able to say, hey, this service shouldn't ever talk to this database. You know, this front end service should never talk to this back end customer database and create that that segmentation. But you could also say, you know, this back end service should talk to that customer database and suddenly it started asking for it, you know, a large amount of, of data that it has never asked for before, you know, anomaly detection. Therefore we think possibly somebody's trying to exfiltrate data. I know this is not what you work on from a day-to-day basis, but what are some other uses of Istio? Why does that project have a lot of steam around it? I can talk a bit about how it relates to to what Google does internally, which is particularly interesting. So internally, we have something called Application Layer Transport Security, ALTS, and there's a white paper on our website. And ALTS provides strong identity for services in our internal infrastructure and uses that identity to authenticate services and encrypt data in transit when it crosses physical boundaries. And so the benefit of Istio, obviously from, from a you know service mesh networking point of view, is, is great. The benefit from security point of view is huge. You have these services who previously you just had to trust that they were whoever they said they were. And now you're going to be able to actually verify that they are, in fact, the service that they said they, they were. So getting a request for, you know, from, from this database, getting a request from the front end service for a particular user's data or whatever, within Google is, is authenticated and verified that that is, in fact, the service it's requesting for. There's, in fact, a valid end user request coming from, you know, with that service. With Istio, that's going to give everybody else the same, the same power. Everybody else will be able to say, oh, yes, uh, you are, in fact, that identity. Therefore, I can, you know, have this interaction with you. So that, that's huge in terms of in terms of limiting access to, to various calls within your infrastructure. Now to go back to the logging and monitoring conversation, I think this also fits in with Istio, because if, if Istio is giving you a bunch of network traffic data, then you've got network activity, you've got process activity, you've got file activity, you have all these sources of high volumes of logging and monitoring data. If I'm operating a container infrastructure, how do I filter through all this information? How do I find signal from the noise? What am I configuring? Hopefully you're not trying to find signal from the noise. Hopefully, you know, whatever vendor or open source tool has done that for you. You're looking for anything that's that's unusual behavior. And so if you train an ML model and say, you know, the last 24 hours of access are normal, tell me anything that goes beyond that access. It will tell you, um, we'll find all kinds of things for you. But that's still pretty noisy. I think what we don't have yet is necessarily, oh, you're deploying Redis on Kubernetes. We know what that looks like. Therefore, this behavior is unusual. Or we don't have these kind of like templates of, of expected behavior for various services yet. Hopefully some of the vendors do, or somebody has them someday. So on each node, the Kubernetes model is there's several pods, several pods fit into a node and there are containers within each of these pods. And if we're trying to detect malicious behavior, we are going to look at system calls. We need to look at the system calls that the containers on a given node are making. What for those unfamiliar with Linux, what is a system call? Can you explain that term? Sure, a system call is a call that a particular process would make to the kernel to do something like access a particular function. Let's say. So something like a like a like a memory access, something like like dumping dumping memory, etc. would be a system, would be reflected in system calls. And why is it useful to to be looking at system calls from a security standpoint? 
from a security standpoint, system calls are the one of the main ways that a container would try to do anything. So what I mean by that is if a container can't do something in memory in its own application and needs to ask the kernel for you know more memory, more resources to connect to another container to do anything, all of that has to go through the kernel. And so a system call is going to be you know a large fraction of what we see the container doing will be reflected in the system calls that the container is, is doing. In some of the security solutions that people deploy to Kubernetes, you'll have a model where one of the pods on the node is a management container. Explain what a management container is. Yeah. So a daemon setter, a privileged container, is a container that you would run on on every node. And running in privileged mode would have the ability, for example, to look at another container system calls. A management container in in a typical model where we're talking about a a runtime security solution is another container that would look at the output of that of that privileged container or that kernel module and say, hey, you know, these calls look anomalous. So when we're talking about having an ML model that you're running on your containers and to look for anomalous behavior, that itself is running in another container. And that's typically running in a management container. Now, the reason you would want to run that container alongside all of your other containers is then if you want that container to take any kind of action. So if you just want to know that something is happening, you can run that independently and run it somewhere else. If you want to then be able to say, okay, please kill that container, that management container needs to have the power to do so um, and take that action. Okay. And how does information get shuttled between the nodes and the management container? Just like any other information would, would go between two, between two pods or two containers. Okay. So what kinds of data are being forwarded from those nodes and the management container? So from a container that you're just monitoring, it, you would look at the system calls that it makes to the kernel. And that's what the either the kernel module or a, or a privileged container would see. And then it would feed some subset of that information, some subset of logs to a management container to then take action on, analyze, etc. Okay. So the management container could be reading these feeds of system calls that all the other individual containers are making. And if it detects some anomalous stream of behavior, the management container can emit a signal to the bad actor container or the or the deviant container and shut it down. Correct. Correct. But the, the only thing I'll, I'll add to what you're saying is the management container would probably not be looking at all of the syscalls. Typically, the privileged container kernel module would filter some subset of things that it thinks are, are more critical. Oh, okay. Are there a specific set of, of system calls that are typically filtered for? Um, it's just it's just more from a performance point of view. If you're feeding it all of the syscalls, then that's a, that's a lot of overhead. So looking more at things that are more likely to be related to a to a security attack. Oh, okay, and so this is again something that hopefully the vendor, you know, if you're purchasing some security software from a vendor, the vendor is going to help you set up that you know the management container and instrument the daemon set across all your other containers, and they're going to know what to look for, essentially, or they'll purport to. So if I find deviant behavior, what is the effective response strategy? You've got a bunch of options. You, you know, As you said, you could just kill the container, but you could also send an alert. You could isolate the container. You could pause the container. You could just restart it. What are some of the use cases where you'd want to take these different responses? Yeah, I think it really depends on how on how bad it, it really is in your infrastructure. So if you're dealing with, you know, you just have a security vulnerability or something like that, the easiest thing to do, and it's a known, you know, zero day, the easiest thing for you to do is just to rebuild, redeploy your container, and that's fine. If you're talking about, you know, actually being attacked and trying to take an action like, oh, something bad is happening in my environment, the first thing you can do is just send an alert, right? This is this is a easy thing to just let your team know, let your security team know that something bad is happening. 
to go take a look if they have capacity and then start to investigate. I typically recommend this is typical, you know, security best practice is before you start implementing any kind of automated reaction, just start sending alerts on things and seeing what what comes up and seeing if they're legitimate. And then you'll have a good idea of whether or not you want to take the next step, which is trying to automate some of these, these reactions. The simplest reaction you could probably take is to isolate a container. What I mean by isolate is you can you can move the container to a new network. And that would then restrict its network connectivity. The idea here being, I don't want, you know, if there is something bad in this container, I don't want it to spread to other containers. I don't want it to get to other parts of my network. But I also want to ha- still have this container around so I can look at it a little bit. And this goes back to the forensics piece that we had earlier that you might not have a great idea of what's actually happening in that container. And so killing it's going to get rid of that information. If you move it somewhere else, you can still look at it later if you have a chance to, but at least it can't affect certain parts of your infrastructure that you were worried about. The next one would be like pausing a container. So you can suspend all the running processes in a container. For example, if you detected crypto mining, this would be a great way to somebody from mining Bitcoin all night long. Uh, and then you can make a backup of that again to do forensics and further investigate. So that's another sort of in the same in the same order of magnitude of, of try to stop it from getting worse, but not necessarily stop it completely. And then there's kind of the most, the strongest actions you could take, which are restarting a container or killing a container. Restarting a container is a great way for you to just stop whatever's happening right now from happening, right? That's why we do health checks on containers. That's why people constantly rebuild, redeploy, et cetera, just killing the thing and, re- and restarting it. The only problem with that is if somebody was able to already get a get a foothold into your container, they'll lose that, but it doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't stop them from doing it exactly again, exactly the same way again. So I would say you're going to restart a container if it's a really critical threat to your infrastructure and you have a pretty good idea as to how it happened or else you're just going to end up in the same situation again in 10 minutes from now. And the last item here would be, you know, killing a container. You can just halt all running processes and, you know, not even relaunch the container. And this is kind of the absolute worst case scenario that you can be in. Much of the importance of the security infrastructure today in 2018, it sounds like, is what the commercial provider of security is offering you, for example, in that management container. How do the open source solutions that are available for container security, how do those compare to the commercial providers? I think the the open source community is really focused on going back to our earlier, you know, secure to develop, secure to build and deploy, secure to run. The open source community is really focused on the secure to develop. So there's a lot of efforts going on right now to improve the defaults in Kubernetes, to improve the defaults that, that customers get to use in some of these other tools to make it easier to use these things. There's not that much open source attention being put on the second and third item, not because they're not interesting, just because the community hasn't gotten there yet, I'll say. In the in the middle space, in terms of software supply chain, um, Google has an open source project called Grafeus, which is a metadata server, which lets you, for example, store information about vulnerabilities in your images. So you would scan your images for vulnerabilities or you know, have other requirements around your images, and you could write these to this open source metadata server. And that's what we use for our container scanning capabilities. The last area in terms of the run- time space, the pure, you know, detect something bad that's going on. You were correct. There's really not a lot in the open source right now. From the handful of companies that are involved in the space, there's a couple of projects. One is um, Sysdig and Falco from Sysdig. Uh, it's a it's a kernel module and a rules engine that, again, look for anomalies and, and whatnot in your environment, and they plug into their, their commercial solution. Another one is more in the networking space, which we haven't really talked about, is, is Cilium from a company called Covalent. And it does some network traffic monitoring and, and isolation type stuff. And another one in the space is uh, Capsulate. There's another company in this space and they've open sourced, again, their, their, I believe it's a privileged container that they deploy. And so let's say I'm an enterprise and I'm walking through the expo hall at KubeCon and I'm talking to the different security providers, of which there are many, what are the questions I should be asking them? 
I think you should be realistic first, which is, you know, have you done what you need to get done on in your own environment before you go to a vendor? So and anybody who can help you with basic kind of configuration deployment stuff, you know, one example is the CIS benchmarks, or if you have a compliance needs around PCI, for example, any vendor who can help you set up your cluster the right way, that's probably where I would start in terms of getting getting the basics down right. Once you figure that out, then let's look at vulnerability scanning and image scanning, that kind of thing. You know, can you can you help me figure out how to scan to only deploy things that I've scanned for vulnerabilities and have no known vulnerabilities. So that's that's a pretty big big ask. And then and then I would look into the runtime space and, and and what you can do there to detect what's happening in your environment. It's not that the runtime space is less important. It's as important. I'd say it's less urgent, less low hanging fruit. People aren't there yet. Are there any security anti patterns that you see commonly executed with people deploying Kubernetes infrastructure? I think it goes back to this defaults thing. It's very interesting to me. I only started working on Kubernetes about six months ago. It's interesting to me coming in as a sort of outside security person, seeing a lot of things that I would have done, you know, quote unquote differently or or would have expected to be different. So one I'll look back is our back was only introducing Kubernetes until until 1.6 and made the default in 1.8. RBAC is role-based access control. It, it sort of blows my mind that we got, you know, a, a year and a half of Kubernetes releases solidly under our belt without having RBAC. Like that, that completely blows my mind. So the anti-pattern that I have there is that people are still running clusters using ABAC or clusters in 1.6 or in 1.7 that could be upgraded to RBAC and aren't, aren't upgraded yet. The, the more general anti pattern that I have there is what I was talking about earlier, which is people expecting their infrastructure to be constant and non-changing, right? Part of the goal of moving to microservices, to containers, to all these things, is that you are constantly rebuilding and redeploying. And one of the things you'll be doing is constantly upgrading. You'll be constantly upgrading Kubernetes to get all the new features. And so not and being in a mindset where you've tied yourself to a particular feature or a particular version becomes, becomes a problem from a security point of view, because you want to be able to patch that thing as soon as it's available. What security stuff were you working on before you moved to Kubernetes? Yeah, I was working on encryption at rest and encryption key management for Google Cloud. So I worked on Google Cloud KMS and a couple of white papers on how we encrypted data at rest and in transit by default. Fascinating. How did that work change your perspective on security? That previous work? Yes. I don't know that it changed my... Well... I think it changed what I see customers ask for in terms of security, right? Everybody, everybody wants to be secure. Everybody wants some, you know, minimum requirements. Google is great. And then Google Cloud will encrypt all your customer content by default without action required from you, the customer, which is amazing. And yet customers really want the control of managing their own keys. Now, if you look at something like key management, it, like encryption is not hard because encryption is hard. I mean, it is, but like encryption is really hard because key management is so hard. And so we've done this wonderful thing, in my opinion, which is managed the keys for you and made it really easy for you. And large enterprise customers still want to manage their own keys. And to me, it's like, you want the worst of it. You want the the brunt of this thing with almost no benefit because the benefit's already there. Um, and at the same time, I completely understand, right? Enterprise requirements, that's, that's what they're going to ask for. Well, you see the same thing in, not to go down this rabbit hole at all, but the cryptocurrency community. Like you have the people who just want to buy cryptocurrencies on Coinbase, which does the key management for you. And then you have a ton of people who are saying, no, that defeats the purpose. I want to maintain my own keys. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a shocker that we don't have a working PGP email solution, but that's a whole other, that's a whole other can of worms. Yeah. So what else is Google building to, to help with container security? Are there any problems in, in the container security space that we haven't addressed in this conversation? 
Um, I think we've touched all the major major parts of it. I'd say there's there's some, definitely some very interesting work being done in isolation, and that's what I was referring to earlier with GVisor, and we're involved in that in the Kubernetes community in terms of making what does a sandbox pod look like, and what properties should it have, and how do we actually protect it from touching things like shared storage and shared networking and all these other things that are also shared that are not the kernel, right? The another area that we're obviously spending a lot of effort on is this software supply chain piece. So Grafeus, the metadata open source metadata server that we we spent quite a bit of time working on. How should that work as part of a standard flow? Is there something the community can do to make that even easier for, for a developer not to mess up and have it flow through from your standard CI CD pipeline through to production? And then the area that I'm primarily working on is this runtime space uh, where we don't have anything to, to announce it yet, but obviously working in to make it easier for you to run partner tools on GCP and for you to have some, some base protection in place uh, that you would need if you're running containers. That Grafeus metadata project Tell me more about how that assists with security. Yeah, so the idea is you might have a container registry somewhere of all of your images, and you want to be able to record uh, information about those images, such as when was the last time they were built? Can Does this image you know, meet my internal PCI checklist? Does it have any known vulnerabilities? Can I deploy it in this environment? All those kinds of things. So various metadata about that image. And one of those pieces of metadata is vulnerability information. And one of those is what we'll call att- attestation information, which is I attest that this thing can be deployed or I attest that this thing cannot be deployed based on, for example, whether it has certain vulnerabilities. So the Grafeus metadata project is really around creating a, a standard for what that looks like and an easy way for you to run your own metadata server for your own image registry such that you can make those decisions based on properties of your images. So you could build an emission controller that then says, if this particular image does not meet that vulnerability you know, mark or that attestation mark, do not deploy. Right. Yeah, that sounds quite useful. So... I think we covered that a little bit in a in a previous episode with IBM because that, that's IBM's working on that as well, right? There's a handful of partners uh, working on it. Yeah, JFrog, Aqua, Twistlock. Right. Yeah. Okay. The last thing I, I wanted to ask you about: you use a Chromebook, and I have just heard about. How did you know that? <laughs> <laughs> you hear about people like you hear about entire enterprises switching over to Chromebook because of these security advantages. What is the advantage of the Chromebook security model? Yeah, the Chromebook security model follows kind of the Google security best practices in the sense that, so first of all, to understand why Chromebooks are so popular with Google, it's important to understand how we work. We don't have code locally on our machines. We run all, we do all our code builds and, and, and development in the cloud. And so your laptop, if you, if you, if you have one, is basically a browser. It's a way for you to get to a code editor or SSH into a machine or, or do that kind of thing. So Chromebook makes a lot of sense for, for, for Googlers internally to, to use for development. The security model is that it has, you know, a piece of hardware has a TPM that's trusted that we can use to bootstrap, you know, identity to. So the machine has an actual identity. It has a machine certificate that we that we embedded that in that TPM. And that's then used as part of, as one of, I should say, many risk factors that we use as part of Beyond Corp. So determining whether or not you your access to a particular application should be allowed cloud uh, based on, for example, your location, your ID, your password, the machine certificate that, you are, that you're accessing from, etc. So Chromebook gives us that. The other big advantage for us from a Chromebook is that, you know, we control the build. We know what Chrome OS looks like. We can rebuild Chrome OS from scratch. Um, it's an open source project. Anybody can take a look at it. And 
having that level of control over the OS and building in a ton of security features from the get-go, like how um, you know load pin is used and that kind of stuff, gives us far more control over you know knowing what exactly is running on our machines. So it's I think the benefits for a general individual versus you know a Google individual are slightly different. I think Google has a lot of Google-specific things that make sense for Chromebooks. As a general individual, why I would give it you know to my mom would be it's significantly harder for her to be fished given that you're living in an ecosystem around, you know, having your Gmail account, which already has a ton of protection around it. You have a hardware token in the machine. It's, you know, rebuilt. It's repatched for you automatically, all that kind of stuff. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I had a listener that wrote into me recently about why he was so excited about Chromebooks and, and the future and just telling me about how, you know, he saw a world where every application was just ephemeral containerized infrastructure and there would be so many advantages to having every application being ephemeral containerized infrastructure that you really wouldn't want any of that kind of application activity occurring on your client device unless maybe that client device is running a containerized system itself i haven't fully delved into that paradigm but um well, you know, there is a project in that space, an open source project called Cubes, Q-U-B-E-S. And their goal is to make everything you're doing on a local device in a container. And it's a super cool project. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, sure. Why not? I mean, all the security advantages that we've been talking about for this entire episode, I mean, why wouldn't you want those on, on your client applications? Yeah, <laughs> good question. <laughs> okay. Well, Maya, thanks for coming on the show. It's been really great talking to you about container security. Thank you so much. Wow.